Why don't y'all turn with me to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback one in the seat right in front of you. Um, And Luke 2 is on page 909. 909. Why don't y'all turn with me to Luke uh, chapter 2. We'll start in verse 21, and I'll read to verse um, 35. And it reads like this. uh, When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord just as it is written in the law of Moses. Every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary and under the law. Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother, Mary, indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news that we didn't have to come up and get you, but you came down and found us, Lord. I pray that... um, You would fill us with joy as we take our eyes off of looking at our problems and aim them at you, Father. We pray that you would lift our souls today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't y'all take your seats? Dominic uh, came down from the stage and he said, John, uh, you may not be a pastor, but people are going to find some prefix to give you, all right? So, uh... Uh, I'm John. I'm a member. You can um, call me John. And I do count it a uh, privilege to be able to uh, preach God's word on the weeks that I do. And um, there's just certain times where you get to, yeah, um, you feel humbled at being able to uh, remind people of very blatant and obvious truths that are found in God's word, but we so easily forget. Um, One of those truths is this. Um, There are two kinds of people in the world. There are those that um, start to play Christmas music immediately after Halloween. 
take a hiatus on Thanksgiving and then we get right back to it. That's one type. Um, and then there are the Grinches that want to steal our joy. Um, <laughs> something special about Christmas uh, is the music and something special about the music is it does what all music does but with Christmas music we are drawn into and reminded about the one truth that um, every song has a story all right stories and songs are inseparable all right when 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 you can't uh, sing like me you love to just learn the stories behind the uh, songs, that each song isn't just a collection of notes and beats and rhythm. These songs are about these turning points that when you hear them, it helps you to engage with the song differently. This past week, I heard uh, Daryl Simmons, this Grammy award-winning songwriter and executive producer, talk about... Um, Boys to Men, End of the Road, all right? So you know that part at the end where Wanye saying, oh my God, help me out a little bit, right? I'm not going to sing it, but you all know that part. Uh, the story behind that song was that they were rehearsing for their tour. Wanye lost his voice. They had a limited amount of time to which they could record that song. And so he said, the only way that I can actually sing these notes is if I yell them. So he has this warm towel on his throat, standing back, yelling the song far away from the microphone by the time he gets to the end. Um, he's literally saying, oh my God, help me out, right? Because his throat is so hurt. And what he said is like, man, once you hear that, you never listen to the song the same way again, right? This is not somebody acting. It is somebody really uh, calling out for help. Every story has a song, and sometimes those stories uh, just give you an interesting piece of trivia, but then there's sometimes where those songs are so close to what you're experiencing that it's not just interesting, you feel involved, you feel like a participant, you feel like you and Brian McKnight were dating the same girl <laughs> when he wrote One Last Cry, right? That song got me through many a middle school breakup, right? That you just feel so connected that you're like, his story might as well be my story. Um, the reason why I bring that up is because regardless of if you're somebody that's been playing Christmas music since November the 1st, uh, or you're one of the Grinches that just started a couple of weeks ago, um, I want you to know that we live in a world uh, where even if we know the words to those songs, sometimes it feels very hard to be joyful. We live in a world that has such fully grown trouble that the world in which we live in threatens our world. And I bring that up because I think that our default is to be discouraged, not to be Encouraged. Whether you're an optimist or pessimist, I think our default is to be discouraged. We can find discouragement without even trying in two ways in particular, through our knowledge and through our ignorance, okay? In your knowledge, you can find ways to be discouraged as you're 
figuring out the things that are known, we all can instinctively look at ourselves and start to pick away at ourselves at the things that are wrong with us. Our knowledge of frustrations and failures can drive us to discouragement. We look at ourselves and at the end of a year, we can look back at the promises that we made at how we would change at the top of the year and feel like I'm not the father I should have been. I'm not the mother. I'm not the friend. I'm not the brother. I'm not who I should be or I could be. And our knowledge of ourselves can drive us to be discouraged without even trying. Not just ourselves, but our knowledge of our surroundings. That the more that we learn about the conflict in Israel, the more discouraged we get that things are ever going to stop. The more that we learn about how our world works, the more that we learn about uh, oppression, the more we learn about frustration, the more that we look at our world surround us and realize that we live in a world uh, where you can faithfully pay your home insurance for 10 years and they'll come at you and say, you actually need a new roof and we're going to drop you unless you pay uh, for that new roof, right? Uh, yeah, there's somebody in here that went through the same thing that we did, right? Our default is to be discouraged, but not just through what we know, through the things that we don't know. It's not just being frustrated with the things that we know about ourselves and our world. It's being frustrated about the things that we don't know, that we hear and we sing songs about God being good and God being in control. And we know that God is at work. However, uh, we don't really know how things in our life are going to work out. And you realize what I do that um, worrying is a lot easier than worshiping. See? There it goes. So the question I want to spend our time on today is this. How do we find joy when everything around us, even us, still feels like this work in progress? Um, there's a story and there's a song from Luke chapter 2 uh, that I want to share with you, and I just want you to know this, wherever you are, um, our lives are going to continue to be these works in progress, and if you wait for God to finish working, um, you're never going to start worshiping. If you wait for God to finish, you're never going to start, so there is a way that we can start now, even though God isn't finished, even though we are not clear uh, that he is, um, uh, or what he's at work doing. I want to start here and to help us rethink something familiar, something that we overlook. Genius.com is one of my favorite uh, sites. I love to go there and listen to old songs that I know and just look through and realize all the stuff that I sang that I missed over. What it'll do is it'll take these lyrics and it will exposit them. All right, so it'll help you see what this meant. And before we get to the story, I just want to do that for y'all in verse 21 to 24. Look here at verse 21. Um, it says this, look, when the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given to him by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as it was written in the law, every firstborn male 
will be dedicated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Here is the genius.com exposition of that context. What you get here is you get a devout family, Mary and Joseph, bring their son, and over and over and over, it's telling you all the actions that they do, they do because it was something commanded by God. They want to obey God. They want to please God. They want to start their family in a context where everybody in their family knows that we exist to live our lives for God. And you see this pious family that is doing everything that they can to honor God and his law. But one of the things that you may not have seen because we're unfamiliar with the context is that this pious family is a poor family. Did you see that at the end of verse 24? 24 says this, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, look, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. All right, you go to Leviticus chapter 12, starting in verse 6, right? And Here's what it says in verse 6, right? When her days of purification are complete, whether for a son or a daughter, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a year-old male lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Verse 8 says this, um, but if she doesn't have sufficient means for a sheep, she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. It says, no, 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 as people came in and they wanted to be devout and they wanted to give to God, God said, all right, this is what you got to give, a lamb, a male lamb. But what if you don't have that? What if you're broke? Then you know what God's going to do? God's going to make provision for even the broke people to come and to offer him because God never wants it to be thought of. God never wants us to think that our financial predicament has anything to do with his love for us. God wanted to ensure that he had a room full of people across all tax brackets so that nobody would make the mistake of confusing material provision with spiritual um, love. Being pious, being poor are not opposites. Being rich doesn't mean that God loves you any more than being poor means that he doesn't. And the reason why I bring that up is, I mean, we'll say a little bit more about this family, but I want you to see something about the Lord Jesus. What you see about the Lord Jesus is this. He chooses not just to come down to earth as a man. He chooses to be poor, born into a poor family. That's important because of this. Look, if you had the choice to determine the financial situation of the family that you were born into, what would you choose? If you've ever envied anybody, then I'll tell you what you would choose. 
Jesus has the ability to choose this, and he chooses to come down. He was the only one who, made, who had that choice, and he made the choice that nobody else would make. We spend so much time talking about Jesus' selflessness while he was on earth, withstanding the temptations that you and I have, but you and I don't realize he withstood temptations that you and I will never have the privilege of facing. I bring all that up at the beginning to say, especially as we head into the Christmas season, especially for those of us in here that are parents, or you may be an aunt or uncle or play aunt. Um, there's so many things that we want to give to our kids. For those of us that grew up without means, we work really hard to ensure that our kids don't grow up in, in the same way. And we can spend so much time ensuring their material and tangible joy that we forget there's a gift that we can give to them that is so much better than that. And that is being raised in an environment where they know that their love and affection for God is the most important thing that they have. You got this pious but poor family, and they come and they meet this man, Simeon, and it says that he's a devout man, that he's somebody that's been waiting for Israel's consolation. What that means is that Israel was an oppressed and occupied land and group at this time, and they were waiting for somebody to come and to deliver them and to set them free. So here you have this old man who set his hopes on the promises of God that this would take place. And he comes into the temple and he meets this family. And the very first thing that we see here is this surprising contentment. It's not just that he's content. As we look at this, his contentment is surprising. You know the feeling of relief that you get when you've been searching for something for a long time, for your keys, for a phone, for a misplaced book, and you finally found it, that sense of relief, that thing that just makes you feel content. Simeon has that now, but it's so surprising. Look here at... Uh, uh, verse 29, he's, he's going to use these words. Or let's, yeah, 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 let's start at verse 25. It says this, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. Here's what's so surprising. Simeon is going to talk about death the thing that nobody wants to come quickly, the thing that nobody wants to get to, the thing that we all live to avoid, and Simeon's going to talk about his death, but it's going to be paired with this joy. He's heading to death, but not reluctantly. And do you know what the key to this is? 
those two words that are up there, you see that juxtaposition. Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace. That master and servant language helps us to understand that this is somebody that has been living his entire life for somebody else. And now as he is approaching death, the thing that none of us want to face, he's saying, I can go in peace. You and I tend to think that the way to find contentment is for you and I to be completely free, to have complete control over our lives and what we want to do. We imagine that complete freedom is actually the key to contentment. Simeon finds, no, 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 no. The key to contentment is not me being completely free. He's saying, no, 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 I can be content because, no, make no mistake, I'm serving a master, but I have a good one that has brought me a very, very good gift. And in that, look at this. His life isn't over. His life is complete. It's not over. It's complete. There's two types of people that will say, my life's over. Either they're at the bottom and things are so bad that they do not imagine things getting any better. And they will say, I'm at rock bottom. This can't get any better. My life is over. It's done. Or somebody that's at the top, their life isn't over, it's complete. They say, yo, yo, I have something. And my life is, no, there's no way that my life could get better. I have it all. Simeon is the latter. And the craziest thing about all this is, is this tells us that this was a man that was waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the Messiah, the King, the, to come into the world and to fix and to prepare things. And you have somebody so content that he's saying, I'm ready to die in peace, and not a single circumstance of his life has changed. That's a surprising type of contentment to feel that at peace in the same predicament that has everybody else frustrated. And that's this, look, contentment is rooted in us believing that God said he, or believing that God would do what he said he would do. You see that verse at the end. You can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. Contentment, a surprising contentment that floats above the waves of changing circumstances is rooted in our ability to believe the promises of God, however unlikely they may be. Do you know what discontentment is rooted in? Especially for the people of God, our discontentment is so often rooted in you and I holding God hostage to outcomes that he's never promised. This is why the master-servant relationship is so important because it begs the question for us, who are we really living for? No, no, who are you really living for? If we were to pinpoint or pull back or pull on the threads of our sadness and it made its way to the bottom, would our sadness be rooted in the fact that God had promised that he would do something and he hasn't begun that work? Or would our sadness be rooted 
in the fact that deep down inside, we believe that our contentment is actually rooted in all the stuff God hasn't even promised us. Maybe our contentment is in the fact that we're not paying attention to the promises of God. That we have no clue what he's actually promised, what's supposed to fill our hearts with contentment. Maybe our discontentment is rooted in the fact that we know the promises of God, we just aren't building our lives on them. We're building our lives assuming that some job or relationship or investment return or somebody else's love or forgiveness is going to be the thing to make us whole. We live our lives saying, God, your promises to never leave us or forsake us. Your promises to give us a hope and a future. Those things are good, but actually, um, I need you to promise me a few other things. And when we do that, we're putting an inverse, we're flipping that whole master and servant relationship. And it's never going to make us joyful. It's never going to make us happy. Here is a great place to be. My life is built on the promises of God. So regardless of what takes place in the world, anytime I see evidence that God is actually coming through on the things that he says, that it's a reason for me to be joyful, it's a reason for me to sing joyfully, even if nothing in my world has changed. Basing his contentment on the promises of God, it doesn't blind him to reality. While everyone else is waiting on something else, Simeon is worshiping somebody. You know what takes place? Look. When you change what you're looking forward to, it changes what you're looking at. When you change your hope, it changes how you see what's right in front of you. It's not just a surprising contentment that he has. He gets this surprising clarity of, about life. The clarity that he gets is this, look. Jesus' entrance into the world means that sorrow is making an exit. Jesus' coming into the world, what it means is that sorrow is on its way out. And that promise is enough to fill somebody with hope as it changes how he sees things. There was this story of uh, two shoe salesmen that were sent to this desert island. One gets there and reports back to his boss, yo, I'm on my way home. This is a failure. Nobody here wears shoes. The other one says, I can't believe you sent me here. Send all the inventory that you have. Nobody here has shoes. Both of them saw the same thing. The second salesman saw an opportunity where the first one saw an obstacle. He had a different perspective. He was looking forward to something, and it changed what he saw, what he looked at. Simeon has the same 
clarity. Look at what he sees, verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for your people, Israel. What does he see? Well, he sees what everybody does, but no one does. He's going to use these words and say, no, no, no. I've seen salvation. We've been praying and waiting on God to change the course of history. How I look at myself, how I look at my world. And he's saying, now I see it. But the question is, no, 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 no. But what did he actually see? He saw a baby belonging to a poor family and where everybody else saw an obstacle. He saw something special. He sees that his salvation is not rooted in some political event. His salvation is not an ideology. His salvation is wrapped up in a person. A person that's not fully grown yet, but a person that will fulfill what God will do nonetheless. Here's what I mean. Um, my wife has ruined me in the best way possible. All right. um, I cannot eat anybody else's mac and cheese uh, in the world because, and I'm not one for superlatives, right? But my wife makes the best mac and cheese on the planet indisputable, no argument, as sure as the sun rises in the right. It's, it's, it's that kind, that's the con conviction that I have. Um, but there's, in this room, y'all are laughing because most of y'all haven't tasted it. The problem is this. Um, my wife only makes it once a year. There's a story behind right that with, you know, her grandma and loss and love, but she only makes it once a year on Thanksgiving. Here's what takes place. Thanksgiving Eve, Mariah Carey's Christmas album is playing in the background, right? We get a ring on the doorbell and Instacart is dropping off these Kroger plastic bags on our welcome mats. And in those plastic bags are different types of cheeses and noodles and ingredients that are redacted, right? I can't, <laughs> I can't share that. I don't even have to go out there. I look at it through the ring cam, and on that Wednesday night, I am rejoicing, and I am praising, and I am singing. Why? Because I see what nobody else sees. No, no. I see, I taste the salvation that's in that mac and cheese. Listen. Everybody else sees ingredients, so it does nothing for them. And they can sit around and complain about all the things that are going wrong 
But from the moment that I see that, for that 24-hour time period, there's nothing that you can do to get me down because I know what's coming. Simeon is saying, man, y'all are frustrated, y'all are mad, y'all are waiting for some event to take place. I see the ingredients. I see God has already pulled his salvation out of the oven, and so he's saying, yo, yo, nothing can get me down. What you have is somebody who realizes that my circumstances don't have to change for my countenance to change. He sees this incredible opportunity in the Savior of the world being born as a poor baby. There's at least three things. One is this. Um, Simeon would never have been able to take a baby that was born into royalty out of his mom's hands like that. You know, when Michael Jackson had his baby, he had a blanket on his head, right? Blue Ivy, they rented out the whole wing of the hospital. There's something about babies of royalty where it's like, yo, we know J. Cole has kids, but we don't know what his kids look like. Jesus was born into a poor family. So what that means is that he was approachable. Everybody saw him. He wasn't inoculated or immune to the struggles, the frustrations, the shame that you and I face. You can look back at John chapter 8. Up until the time that he's 30 years old, people are still roasting Jesus for the story that Mary gave about being uh, impregnated by the Holy Spirit. They're saying, you don't even know who your dad is. Talk about that shame. Jesus was born to a place where he's acquainted with all of that from us. He's not distant. He's not immune to our problems, sorrow, homelessness, loneliness, betrayal, condescension. And he's open. There is no security detail that he has around him that keeps people from pressing through. Throughout the duration of his life, even sick women that have been bleeding for 12 years can get through the security detail that he has and touch him. Jesus is open and accessible to all of us. This is one of the reasons why Jesus' claim him being a savior that lived the perfect life is something that's so impressive because what you have is when anybody gains a sense of popularity or esteem or prestige, immediately what they do is they use their influence to hide their flaws. They become very private people. Most people didn't know the details and the pain and the grief and the anguish that Tiger Woods went through until these biographers came out with an unauthorized biography of him. And one of the things that they said is, we tried to talk to everybody, but nobody wanted to give us all of the dirt on him. Jesus never used his influence that way. He lived this perfect life out in the open. Simeon has this incredible clarity that God's arrival in the world 
means this. His arrival into the world in the way that he came means one thing, at least, and that it's, it's available for all of us. But not just that it's available for, that it's applicable to. Look at verse 31 to 35. He says this, you have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that he will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul, speaking to the grief that she will feel, that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. His salvation is comprehensive. Um, when you go to the doctor, they give you that form that you fill out, tell us about medicines that you're taking, family history, and sometimes there are these long paragraphs after that question, and you have the freedom to write the words N slash A. And all that means is, oh, there's a question, there's something that you want to know from me or about me, and I'm just saying it's not applicable to me. That's for somebody else. That's for a select group of people. As Simeon is singing this song, one of the things that he's saying is that, no, 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 Jesus' salvation it is available for us all, but it's also applicable to everyone. He's going to talk about how it is to be displayed and how it will divide. First, how it will be displayed. His thing is everybody will have access to it, right? Verse 31, you have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and glory to your people, Israel, the light to the Gentiles. God's plan was always that as he showed his favor on a group of people, that group of people would serve as a platform. And that platform would be one to the rest of the world so that anybody that is in need of love and forgiveness and a place to call home and an answer to their shame can look at how God treats his children to be reminded that God wants us all to be his children and God doesn't have any favorite children and their position of prominence was supposed to be something that they used as a platform to tell the world about the goodness of God. The problem that we see time and time again, not just in the story of the Old Testament, but in our own stories, is that often when God gives us prominence, when God gives us blessing, we don't reflect it outward, we turn it inward. We get prideful, we wanna make it about us. And in some ways, as this took place with the nation that God chose, the Gentiles were left in darkness on the outskirts. And as Jesus comes into the world as this poor baby that is approachable, that will be able to be fluent in the language of grief that everybody speaks, it's an invitation to come in. 
Israel's glory. The glory of God is the weight of God. It's a sign of God's favor being on his people. It was tangible. You saw it as God led Israel out of slavery, and they were surrounded by a pillar of uh, cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That God's glory or God's presence with his people is akin to what you see in the burning bush. That you have a bush that is on fire, but it is not consumed which is the sign of God being with somebody, that they could find themselves in the greatest of turmoil or frustration, but they're not consumed by it. God's glory was there and put on display. The good news was that this was supposed to be for all people. The bad news was that it never quite made its way to all people. But as Jesus is born on the scene, Jesus is God's true Israel the true display of the goodness of God, saving his people from self-inflicted wounds. Jesus comes not just as our guide, not just as our God and our Lord, but he comes as our sacrifice to take our place. When I say sorrow is on its way out, what I mean is this sorrow is preparing to make end. We live in the world, the type of world where we know, regardless of your faith commitment, regardless of how much you believe or feel that God loves you, so often our lives seem to give us uh, data that is showing the contrary. Simeon sees God's work not being complete and the promise is enough for him to sing this song and to live with a sense of joy, borrowing some of God's future promises to affect presently how he lives and feels right now. This news of Jesus wasn't just meant to be displayed to the world. Simeon says at the end is that it'll divide. Look at verse 34. Then he blessed them and he told his mother, indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. All right, that phrasing is kind of weird, so let me help you see. Um, Oftentimes when we see that word like rise and fall, we tend to think of two different folks, right? Those that'll rise, those those that'll fall. I think the, the distinction that he makes here is that, oh, no, no, no. There's going to be a group that will ultimately rise, and then there will be a group that opposes him at the end. But notice The words, how it's used here, he doesn't say rise and fall, which is the way that we use this idiom. He's going to say, no, 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 no. It's going to be the fall and rise. So what some scholars believe is that um, that's not speaking of two different groups of people. It's speaking of the way that the one group of people experience the blessing that Jesus gives. That before there is any type of exaltation with him, 
before there's any type of us feeling the goodness of what he does, there is a humiliation of sorts that comes before. There is an acknowledgement, an agreed-upon acknowledgement that our frustrations and failures, the things that we see about us by default, they're not wrong, or we are not wrong to see those things. We are wrong to stay in those things and assume that those are unfixable problems. This is what I mean. Say you find yourself in a conversation with somebody, and you are a close talker, right? So you talk very, very close to their face. And they pull out a piece of gum and offer you a piece of gum. There's two ways that you can take that. The very first one is to be angry. How dare you? What are you saying about me? And you can reject the piece of gum. Or you can acknowledge, I did have extra garlic for lunch. Thank you. It wasn't an insult. You pointed out a problem. And I have to admit that even on my worst days, I see the problem is true about me. I'm going to humbly take the solution that you provided. Because in providing me that solution, what you said is that the problem that I'm facing is not unfixable. It is not terminal. This fall will inevitably lead to a rise. I think this is what the Lord Jesus does as he comes into the world. He comes into the world not in intimidating fashion. He comes into the world very humbly, very unimpressive to ensure that everybody realizes that it doesn't take some big resume or show of how impressive you are to approach him. But as we approach him, as we see through his life and his death and his resurrection, we are reminded that what God has promised to provide through him are the things that we so desperately need. This good gift requires you to believe something very bad about yourself, but very accurate about yourself. It's not meant as an insult. It's meant towards introspection. It's meant for you and I to say, Lord, I've lived my life, and I thought that complete freedom was going to be the way to my contentment, but I realized that there's something more that you have for me. There's something greater that you plan to do in this world that if I could see it clearly would change how I related to my present circumstances. So Lord, I submit myself to you. You're the master. I'm the servant. I rejoice and I praise you for what you've provided. If you find yourself in this place where your amazement of what the Lord Jesus has uh, waned to where your affection 
grows cold to where these Christmas songs come on and you don't feel anything more than your favorite melodies or rhythms. I want to remind you that all these songs, all of what we do here week in and week out, are meant as a reminder of sorts to people that find themselves in despair, drowning in sorrow, folks who may feel like your life is over because you're at the bottom and things can't get any better, I want you to know that Jesus' entrance into the world means that sorrow is on its way out. I pray you would experience that surprising contentment that comes from knowing that God has provided everything that your heart is searching for. I pray you would see your relationships and your present circumstances with an amazing amount of clarity. That even though God's work isn't finished, he started it. And God doesn't start anything that he doesn't plan on completing. And I pray that as you start singing joyfully in the midst of the most frustrating times, that it is something that would cause people to stop and to stare the same way Moses did at that burning bush. And they say, I do not get why they are not consumed in the fire of everything that goes wrong. And you can say, uh, because I'm seeing something that nobody else sees. Let's pray.